All right, we're going to get started. If everyone can um, find their prayer sheet, we're going to start with prayer this evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening, Professor Gabriel Reynolds. Professor Reynolds is a Islamic studies and theology professor at the University of Notre Dame. He earned his PhD in Islamic studies at Yale University, and his research focuses on the Quran and Muslim-Christian relations. Dr. Reynolds and his family are members of St. Pius X Catholic Church in Granger, and in his spare time, he follows Notre Dame football, plays soccer, and likes to watch science fiction movies. This evening, he's going to be speaking to us about interfaith dialogue with Muslims. So without further ado, I'll pass over the mic to Professor Reynolds. Nice to see you, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'd like to thank Sean Allen, who organizes this whole series, and also Angela for that um, very kind introduction. As she said, my goal is to speak a little bit about dialogue between the Catholic Church and Islam between Christians and Muslims. And I might start with a brief reflection about an experience I had with my class last Friday when we visited the mosque here in South Bend, which you may know is quite close to the Notre Dame campus. And some of my students, uh, my poor students who had to deal with me in class today, are here again tonight. <laughs> so if you're feeling that, uh, you know, in, uh, 45 minutes of me speaking could be bad, it could be worse. So, uh, But on Friday, we, uh, we all went together to visit uh, the local mosque. And as you may know, the day of prayer for Muslims is not Sunday or Saturday, but is Friday, which can be a challenge living in the United States where people are at work and they have to find time, a time to leave to make it to the mosque. And um, I think there are two observations I had from that visit to our local mosque. First, which is something that has always been impressive to me about Islam, is witnessing the devotion that Muslims have in prayer. And many of you may know that the Muslim style of prayer involves impressive bodily movements. That is, impressive in the sense that Muslims will fully prostrate before God with their forehead touching the ground as a symbol manifesting complete submission to God. And also an element of Muslim prayer is not only the individual who prostrates fully to God, but also the collectivity of the experience that, that as Muslims line up together and shoulder to shoulder, all prostrate together to God. So on the one hand, there's that individual submission to God. And on the other hand, there's that experience of community that we're all submitting ourselves to God together. And another element of our experience on Friday was listening to the sermon. Muslim prayer is relatively simple. A Friday uh, Muslim prayer service usually involves about a 30-minute sermon. And then the formal afternoon prayer of Islam, which only takes four to five minutes. And so all of it can be done in less than uh, uh, most Catholic Mass. Depends, most Catholic Masses depends how quickly uh, your priest runs through things. 
but of course, speed isn't everything. Um, but the sermon that we heard at the beginning of the prayer service focused on the importance of controlling one's anger. That was one of the two um, elements that was um, emphasized during the talk. The importance of controlling one's anger. So everyone has experiences where they, um, they're frustrated or angry, but the speaker, the imam at the mosque, made the point that the challenge is how to deal with those experiences. And then the second point he made was that all humans have virtue. And he quoted a, a statement of the Prophet Muhammad, according to which those of you who are the best before Islam, before you became Muslims, are still the best once you become Muslims. So his point was that people, his interpretation of the saying was that people have virtue whether they're Muslims or not. Goodness can be found in all humans. And speaking a bit with my class after the visit to the mosque, someone made the point that, uh, and this was someone who's training to be a priest, he made the point that that was a really good sermon. In fact, not only was it an interesting sermon to discover a bit how Muslims think, but it was something that I could apply to my own life. And that's part of the message that I'd like to get across tonight, that there are certain commonalities that we share between Muslims and Christians. There are certain lessons and elements of Islamic worship, but also Islamic teaching, which can be impressive and even inspiring to Christians. And so in the, time, the times that we live in, where there's a lot of conflict between, uh, between the West and the Islamic world, where there's a lot of conflict in the interior of the Islamic world, it's important to hear a message that there are also bridges that connect us to Muslims. Okay, all of that was introduction. You've only made it through the introduction so far. So, take a deep breath. <laughs> now we begin with the real talk. And I'd like to speak about three things tonight. First, I'd like to speak about how Muslims see divine revelation. And revelation basically is how God reveals himself or how God un unfolds his essence, communicates with humanity. So what is the Islamic view of all that? How do Muslims see the way that God speaks to humanity? That's point one. Point two will be, how do Muslims look at the figure of Jesus, so a figure that's common to Christianity and Islam? What is the Islamic teaching on Jesus? That's point two. And then point three is, in light of points one and two, in light of Islamic teaching on Revelation and Islamic teaching on Jesus, how should the church respond to Islam? So let's begin then with this question of Islamic teaching on Revelation. The first point to note about the Islamic teaching on Revelation or how God speaks to humanity is that the heart of Islamic teaching is a message about prophets. Christian teaching on Revelation involves God speaking through prophets. Remember the names that we hear in the first reading of Mass like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all these guys, right? But also, Christian teaching says, but God went beyond that and revealed himself in a person, in the incarnation of God and Jesus Christ. Well, Islam says, no, the way that God communicates with humanity is always through prophets, through revealing his message or speaking a message to one particular prophet who then communicates that to his community. There's a saying in the Quran which says, to every community, a messenger has been sent. That every community or nation has received one prophet. Jesus went to the Israelites, for example. Uh, and Moses went to his own people of his time, the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians. And Muhammad was sent to the Arabs. 
So each nation gets a prophet. And that's how God works. That's how he does his, he conducts his business. He chooses prophets. And there's two points that's important to emphasize about these prophets. First, according to Islamic teaching, all of the prophets came with the same fundamental message. Namely, believe in one God and obey the prophet. So strict monotheism, the belief in one God, and then obedience to the prophet. And that's reflected in what Muslims call the profession of faith. To become a Muslim, all that's involved, there's no RCIA, it's much simpler. All that's involved is a simple profession of faith to declare that there's no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. And um, that reflects the twin message that all prophets have. And so there's a timelessness in the Islamic doctrine of prophets. Adam said, there's no God but God, and Adam is the messenger of God. Abraham said, there's no God but God, and Abraham is the messenger of God. Jesus said, there's no God but God, and Jesus is the messenger of God. And then finally, and this is the second point about prophets that's important, the final, the final prophet, according to Islam, was, of course, Muhammad. And Muhammad, in some ways, is not only the final prophet, he's the definitive prophet. According to Islamic teaching, the message which Muhammad gave to humanity, what Muslims know as the Sharia, which means something like God's will for all of humanity, that message replaces all of the messages of earlier prophets. It's the definitive message, and it's also eternal. It will remain as the definitive message until the end of time and the day of resurrection. So, lesson number one. Islamic teaching about revelation is about the prophets. Two things to remember about the prophets. The prophets all came with the same basic message, and the final and definitive prophet is Muhammad. Let me also add a few things about what Muhammad said, because according to Islamic teaching, Muhammad came to do two different things. Muhammad, the definitive prophet, came to do two things. And the first was to repeat the message that God gave to him. And did God speak directly to Muhammad? Well, not exactly. The standard Islamic teaching is that God spoke through the angel Gabriel, my favorite angel, uh, through the angel Gabriel, to Muhammad, and Muhammad would hear the messages of God through the angel Gabriel and repeat them to his community. And everything that the angel Gabriel said to him, which Muhammad said out loud, was eventually recorded in a book which is known as the Quran. So that was one thing which Muhammad did. The other thing which Muhammad did is he exemplified or he modeled proper conduct. So Muslims can look to Muhammad and they say, hey, this guy's great. He did two things for us. He gave us a scripture, the Quran, and he also gave us his example. Let me speak about the Quran, which for Muslims, in some ways, is the most important thing that Muhammad did, giving us this scripture. The Quran is a relatively short book. It's about two-thirds the size of the New Testament. It was proclaimed by Muhammad in Arabic, and you may know when Muslims pray today, they only pray at least the standard canonical prayers. They only pray in Arabic because they pray, according to Islamic tradition, exactly as Muhammad did. So there was a time, of course, when the Catholic Mass was only in Latin. Our grandparents, maybe, or your grandparents, my parents. Uh, and people complain like, oh, Latin, we don't understand. For Muslims, it's always in Arabic. If you're in Indonesia, 
you're in Nigeria or if you're in South Bend, you do the prayers in Arabic. So the Quran was this Arabic scripture, and there are three basic messages in the Quran. One way to think about the Quran is the Quran is a book which presents arguments to do the things which your prophet asked. Believe in God, there's no God but God, and to believe and, and to obey the messenger. And the Quran presents three different arguments for this. And just briefly, I'd like to outline this. So at least as a starting point, we have a fundamental idea of what the Islamic scripture is about. So the Quran, first of all, it says, uh, look at the example of, of peoples before you. This is going to sound a little uh, gloomy. Look at the example of peoples before you who have been destroyed by God. So the Quran tells a series of punishment stories, um, beginning really with the prophet Noah. And this is a story common to the Bible and the Quran but other punishment stories as well, according to which peoples who disobeyed the prophet and refused to believe in only one God were destroyed. And as, as you mentioned, the Noah story is sort of common. We know this from the book of Genesis. Another story that fits into this um, category of punishment stories we also know from the book of Genesis. It's the story of Lot. And then we have certain stories in the Quran which are similar, which involve prophets that we don't know from the Bible that have Arabic names like Hud and Saleh and Shu'ayb. Uh, I hope you're memorizing all of this. Okay, so this is, this is argument number one for the Quran. Why should you believe in God and obey the messenger? Because people before you who refused to do so were destroyed. Okay, that's argument number one. Argument number two is, because someone might say, yeah, but there's some people who refused to believe in God and obey the messenger who were just fine, who weren't destroyed. In fact, I know this pagan down the street who lived a good life. He was wealthy, he was happy, and he lived, lived a long life too, uh, and he was just fine. No one destroyed him. And the Quran's answer to that possible objection is, well, even if you make it through life without being destroyed, you'll be punished on the day of resurrection. So argument number two is there's a heaven and a hell. If you obey God and believe in the messenger, then you'll be rewarded with heaven. Heaven is portrayed as, a, as paradise. In fact, it's called the Garden of Eden. And if you refuse to do so, you'll be punished in hell. Again, something common um, to Christian belief, even though most Catholic preachers don't like to speak a lot about hell. But I think Pope Francis has reminded us recently that hell exists and the devil exists, so watch out. Uh, so that's argument number two of, the, two of the basic Quranic messages. And then the third argument is, listen, there's another reason to believe in God, which doesn't have to do with fear of punishment or fear of hell, but which has to do with gratitude. And the Quran says, look around you at the natural world, look at the mountains, look at the rain, look at all the good things in nature, even look at the things that you have, the faculties that you have, of hearing, of sight, of reflection. God has given you all these things. Aren't you going to respond in gratitude to God's natural gifts, the gifts of God in nature. Right, so the Quran presents these three arguments, and the Quran appeals directly to its audience in light of these three arguments to believe in God and to obey the messenger. Um, let me just add one more point to part number one of this talk, and then we'll be one-third of the way through, which is good news. Uh, the Quran also says... Um, that the fundamental response of humans to the Islamic message 
is not only for humans to live good spiritual lives, but to live in obedience to God in all things. And this is, a, I think, a fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity. That is, um, the, uh, Islam teaches that this notion of Sharia or Islamic law is not only about rules and punishment, it's about submitting to God in all things. Uh, for example, remember when I said that Muhammad had this, he did two things. He brought a scripture, but he also set an example. Why is the example of Muhammad important? Because it gives us a model by which to live our lives in submission to God. For example, we have traditions which said Muhammad, when he got up in the morning and he got out of bed, he would always put his right shoe on before his left shoe. Or, when, when, when Muhammad would enter into a mosque, he would always enter with his right foot before his left foot. Or, when Muhammad would sneeze, he would say a certain thing, which is, praise be to God. Of course, when we sneeze, someone else has to say, God bless you, uh, hopefully. Um, but for Islam, when you sneeze, it's a good thing, and you say, praise be to God. Right? So, these things, putting on your right shoe first. Stepping into a mosque with your right foot. Saying, praise be to God when you sneeze. All of these things are exemplified by Muhammad. And Muslims would say, these are things we should imitate. Because it's not that it's so important to put your right shoe on before your left, left shoe. But because in so doing, you're manifesting your obedience to God in all things. Remember there was this trend that was popular and I think is still around, which is, uh, Christians like to put on uh, these WWJD bracelets. These existed. Uh, I think it's a... <laughs> there it is, right in front of me. <laughs> That's one of my students. <laughs> right? So, but for, for Islam, in some ways, WWMD, what would Muhammad do, is even more important. You should obey or imitate um, Muhammad in obedience to God um, in all and always. Just a little story about this. So where I, when I went to graduate school, most of my fellow students were Muslims, and one was very conservative. And one day we, we said, well, our director, our like, director of studies, his birthday's coming up, and so we'd like to buy him a present. And our first idea was to buy him he likes classical music, so we're going to buy him a CD of something, Bach or something. And this conservative Muslim said, no, we can't do that because according to Muhammad's example, Muhammad once said that music is forbidden, so I can't contribute money. And we were like, okay, no music. And then our next option was like, well, we'll buy him a tie. You know, I'm sure he'll like a tie. He has to teach and stuff. And so we thought, we, and we chose a silk tie and he said, no, no, there's a tradition that Muhammad said men should not wear silk, only women should wear silk. So, no tie. And we were, at this point, we were a bit uh, frustrated. We were like, well, what are we going to do? And he's like, well, buy him a plant. There's nothing wrong with a plant, which is what we did. And the whole, so the story is a happy ending. It's not, <laughs> it's not a sad story, but it's just an example. For someone like him, obedience to the example of Muhammad in all things is critical. Okay, well, let, let's move on then. We have a general idea of how God speaks to humanity according to Islam. It's through the prophets. Muhammad as the definitive prophet. We know something about the Quran. We knew something about Muhammad's dual role as spokesperson of God and also exemplar. 
But let's speak a little bit about the Islamic view of Jesus. So this is part two in our three-part journey to speak about Muslim-Christian dialogue. So what do Muslims believe about Jesus? Well, already we know that he's a prophet according to Islam, and that already like makes things complicated in some ways, doesn't it? Uh, because most religions, most other non-Christian religions, don't say anything about Jesus. And, you know, that makes things easier in a sense. You could say, well, we have something in common with Islam. This brings us together, which it might, sort of. But you could also say, listen, dealing with like Hindus or Buddhists, there's no teaching about Jesus, and so there's no point of conflict. Uh, they could tell us things about like, Shiva and Krishna and these Hindu gods, and we can be like, that's really cool, I like that, Shiva, neat, right? And because you have nothing to say about Shiva, and you could say something about Jesus, like, Jesus was so loving, and they were like, yeah, that's good, right? Because they say nothing, they say nothing about Jesus, and so there could just be Hindu-Christian love going back and forth, and there's no problem, right? But Islam is not like these other religions. Islam has a distinct teaching of Jesus, which is not the same as that of Christianity. And we already know that the Islamic teaching about Jesus is that he's a prophet, which means he's not divine and he's not a savior. Like all of the other prophets, like Adam, Abraham, and Moses before him, and like Muhammad after him, what he did is predict, he predicted the coming of, of Muhammad and he preached the message that God gave him. So, um, so Jesus has these two roles. Like other prophets, he, he proclaimed the word of God and modeled the word of God, but he has this other role also, which is he predicted the coming of Muhammad, the final prophet. So just to get things clear, Jesus comes first, and then Muhammad, according to Islamic tradition, Muhammad was born in the year 570 AD and died in the year 632, so about 600 years after Jesus. Uh, okay, but we should also make this point that um, if that's Islamic teaching on Jesus, um, well, how do Muslims see Christian teaching on Jesus? And um, there we might uh, emphasize that Christian teaching on Jesus for, for Islam traditionally is um, a sort of a scandal. The notion that any human would also be divine is seen as um, a sort of offense to God's oneness. Um, and I just here we might refer to some things in the Quran. So we've mentioned the Quran has these three basic arguments. But the Quran does something else. The Quran speaks about theology. Uh, and so in the Quran, uh, the Quran has a very um, strict sense of um, declaring God's oneness. And I might refer in particular to a, a couple of verses um, in the Quran. And maybe it's better just to start with this way. For, for the Quran, um, the declaration of God's oneness is not only like a correct teaching. It's an act of piety. To be a good Muslim means to be a good monotheist. The Quran, in other words, has this theological interest. I mean, you know this term theology means a word about God, right? You all knew that. Theos is God, and logi comes from logos, which is like a word or the study of, right? So now, theology, of course, uh, is great. Uh, I'm a theology professor. But usually Christians don't occupy themselves with theological thinking. I mean, 
even in most homilies, they're usually more about what you should do with your life and less about like the mystery of the divine trinity. I mean, when's the last time you heard your pastor say, isn't it just awesome that God is three hypostases in one divine substance? Like, does that... Um, even when, uh, you know, we stopped saying one and being with the Father and started saying consubstantial, that was like, do we have to get so theological? It sounds very complicated. So, right, so theology usually is not at the center of Christian thinking about religion. For Islam, it is. Declaring God's oneness is an act of piety. And in fact, um, and just so you know, um, the Quran has an unforgivable sin. You may know the New Testament also has an unforgivable sin. I don't know if you ever noticed this passage, but there's a passage in the New Testament which says, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, all other things might be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And don't ask me exactly what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. I'm not really sure. Um, ask the speaker next week. That speaker is an expert on that topic. Um, but there's an, un there's an unforgivable sin uh, in the New Testament. In, in, in the Quran as well, but the unforgivable sin is different. It's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's associating anything with God. Yeah, the Quran says in two different verses in its fourth chapter, um, God will forgive anything, ex can forgive anything, except one who associates something else with God. So this notion of, of association or associating something with God... And for Muslims, the notion that Jesus, who according to Islam is just a person, being also divine, according to Christians, sounds like association. It sounds like a big problem. Um, and one of the ways the Quran tries to correct Christian teaching is it turns Jesus into a spokesman for Islamic doctrine. For example, in Quran chapter 5, there's 114 chapters in the Quran. So in chapter 5, verse 116, the Quran has a conversation between God and Jesus in which God asks Jesus a question. God turns to Jesus. It's not exactly where this conversation is taking place, but it takes place somewhere. And God says to Jesus, hey Jesus, did you ever... He doesn't actually use the word hey, but <laughs> you knew that. He says, Jesus, did you ever say to the people, take, my, take me and my mother as two gods apart from God? And Jesus' response to that is something like pious indignation. He says, glory be to you. The Arabic expression is subhanaka. Glory be to you. Never would it be for me to say that which I have no right to say. In other words, I would never compare myself to a God. I would never make myself divine. And that sort of pious reaction is reflected in the standard Islamic reaction to Christian belief about Jesus. Um, there's also Mary's in there, which is interesting, right? That verse says, did you ever say that people take me and my mother as two gods apart from God? It almost implies that according to the Quran, Mary and Jesus and then God the Father make up some sort of family-like trinity, mother, father, and son. But that's a whole other um, subject. There are other issues of conflict um, between Islam and Christianity, um, which we could speak about maybe later. But principally, at the heart of the issue is this teaching on Jesus. Let me just add two other things about the Islamic teaching on Jesus. So the first thing is that he's a human and a prophet, but not divine. 
But two other things to add, which are really elaborated not in the Quran itself, but in Islamic tradition. And the first one, which may strike Christians as a little unusual, is that according to Islamic tradition, Jesus is not crucified. Uh, which, uh, that's a big difference, right? Uh, according to Islamic teaching, um, according to the standard Islamic teaching, in fact, not only was he not crucified, but someone else was crucified. Um, and Islam tells stories about how someone else was actually physically transformed to look like Jesus. And that person was taken away and put and nailed to a cross. And Jesus ascended to heaven, body and soul, before the crucifixion. Um, so, uh, and there's a nice movie that's been made in Iran which shows this whole thing taking place. According to this movie, the one who was transformed to look like Jesus was Judas, Judas Iscariot, as like a punishment for his uh, treason. God was tr- changed him, and you see in the movie, you see his like, features being all like transformed, and he, he transforms to, being, um, to, to the, the semblance of Jesus and is taken away, and Jesus goes up right into heaven. So, and of course, that has consequences. If Jesus wasn't crucified, then he didn't die for humanity's sins, so he also was not a redeemer. And the whole Christian um, spirituality around the cross and the crucifixion and the Paschal mystery is not a part of Islam. So that's one extra thing. And then the second extra thing is, oh, but Jesus did go up to heaven, which is interesting, right? And sort of implies that if he went up to heaven, that he's going to come back down to earth. And in fact, Islamic teaching is that Jesus is the prophet of the last times or the the end of times. In the end times, it will not be Muhammad who comes back to earth, but it will be Jesus. Only he will come, not come back uh, as like a judge or a ruler as Christian tradition uh, understands the glorious um, appearance of Jesus. Instead, he will come back as the prophet of the end times who will lead the people to basically rally them around the religion of Islam and will establish Islam as the one true religion. But it's, it's Jesus who comes back in the end times, so that's something that's in common between Islam and Christianity. Okay, so that's two of three, which is good. It's 7.36, and everything's going to be wonderful. Uh, <laughs> So we know something about Islam generally and Islamic revelation. We know something about Islamic teaching on Jesus. And now for the last part of the talk, I'd like to speak a little bit about, in light of what we've heard so far and some of the differences in contrast between Islam and Christianity, how should the church respond to Islam? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to begin with the Pope, uh, but not Pope Francis, um, who's great. Uh, but Pope Benedict, and something he said in the year 2006 when he gave a talk at his old institution in Germany in a city called Regensburg. And he gave a talk which actually caused a lot of controversy because he quoted something that speaks about the Prophet Muhammad. But I'm not going to mention that. There's going to be no controversy from this talk at all. There's just going to be illumination. I'm going to mention the heart of his talk, which was really about faith and reason. This talk that he gave, and this was really big for Benedict, was, listen, what distinguishes Christianity as taught by the Catholic Church 
is we have this wonderful balance between faith and reason. That reason helps us, for example, understand Scripture, that we interpret Scripture in an intelligent manner, and faith also inspires us and illuminates our reason so that we're able to contemplate even the mysteries of faith, um, the things that God has spoken to us. Anyway, he says this, Pope Benedict says, In the Western world... It is widely held that only positivistic reason and the forms of philosophy based on it are universally valid. So in the West, we just got reason, basically. In the secular, right, normal, mainstream West, we've just got reason and no faith. And then he says, Yet the world's profoundly religious cultures see this exclusion of the divine from the universality of reason as an attack on their most profound convictions, a reason which is deaf to the divine or faith and which relegates religion into the realm of subcultures is incapable of entering into the dialogue of cultures. Okay, I think that's a really important statement Benedict makes and um, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because he says at the end, a society which is incapable of appreciating faith or reason cannot enter into the dialogue of cultures. And we could think of it this way. When we think of understanding Islam and the faith of Muslims, who are the best equipped to do so? Um, in fact, we might say that secular people, those who have no religious convictions themselves, are only in a place to understand those elements of Islam which are not necessarily religious, that are not connected to Islamic claims of revelation. Christians, on the other hand, can and I think should appreciate all aspects of Islamic faith. It's Christians because we have our own teachings which are based on faith or revelation. We believe are taught to us by God. Christians can understand when Muslims say, I do certain things only because they were taught to me by God. I mean, for example, uh, many Muslim women, not all, but many Muslim women wear a headscarf or a hijab in Arabic. And now, if you speak to Muslims, they might say, well, there are various good reasons for hijab. It makes people focus on a woman's intellect and not on her looks. Uh, it leads to less distraction in society, in their workplace. There are all kinds of arguments for the hijab. Um, but really, the reason why m Muslim women do it is because they believe that God has commanded them to do it. Just like the thing about putting on your right shoe um, first. Uh, so... Um, but other things as well. The Muslim fast during the month of Ramadan, where you may know Muslims do not eat or drink during the hours of sunlight. Um, and again, Muslims might say, well, it's good for your body. It has medicinal uh, or biological positive um, outcomes, and it's a good thing to fast. Uh, but really, Muslims fast because it's an act of obedience to God. And those are things which which Catholics in particular are in a uh, special place of appreciating. And that's because we have our own things that we do out of obedience to God. Friday, Sunday Mass, for example, is an obligation. And sometimes it's not fun, sometimes it's really boring. Uh, one of my colleagues at Notre Dame wrote a book called Bored Again Catholics, uh, Tim O'Malley. So it can be boring, but, but we don't do it to be entertained. We don't do it because like the priest is like super cool and he's awesome, right? The priest might be really boring, but we do it out of obedience to God and out of love to God. 
um, in even things that are a little bit more controversial, for example, Islamic teaching on jihad, uh, which may seem really foreign to the secular Western culture, that there's a place for just war or holy war. If we look into our Catholic tradition, we could see, well, we might have different conceptions of that, but we also have a notion of just war in the Catholic um, tradition. Um, therefore, Christians sh should appreciate Islamic teaching on those matters which are derived from Islamic convictions of faith, because we too have our own convictions of faith. They're different, right? But they're analogous, or they're similar. And so we're in a special way equipped to enter into dialogue with Muslims. Um, but it's not only dialogue, because dialogue in the Catholic perspective is always brought together with proclamation, proclamation of the gospel. After all, the Lord commanded the apostles after his death and resurrection to go out and make disciples. He didn't say, go out and have really great dialogue. Now, <laughs> we believe that we're called to dialogue for other reasons, but the conviction that we have from the teaching to the apostles is that we're called to proclaim the gospel. We can do that in various ways. But I wanted to get to Pope Benedict again. Again, I like Pope Francis, so this is not like a subtle anti-Francis thing. Um, but Pope Benedict said something else which I think was pr um, profound. And this time in 2008, so two years after the Regensburg Address, at World Youth Day in Sydney. Has ever, anyone ever been to a World Youth Day? Wow, okay, cool. In Sydney? No, okay. So, right, nevertheless, yes? Sydney, Australia? No, okay. Nevertheless, he was there, Pope Benedict, and he said the following. This was at a gathering of representatives of non-Christian religions, but it was part of the World Youth Day thing, right? And he said, The religious sense planted within the human heart opens men and women to God and leads them to discover that personal fulfillment does not consist in the selfish gratification of ephemeral or superficial desires. Rather, it leads us to meet the needs of others and to search for concrete ways to contribute to the common good. Religions have a special role in this regard, for they teach people that authentic service requires sacrifice and self-discipline. So all of that is something that religions all hold in common. Service to others. Right? This is something that religion sort of uplifts and inspires us to do. And he says, friends, these values, I am sure you will agree, are particularly important to adequate formation of young people and young adults um, who are so often tempted to view life as a commodity. I added in the young adults thing. Yet religion, by reminding us of human finitude and weakness, also enjoins us not to place our ultimate hope in the passing world. So we're not called only to service to others, like this horizontal dimension. We're also called to a vertical dimension, thinking about God, worshiping God. And he quotes the Psalms, Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. He then says, the church shares these observations with other religions. Motivated by charity, she approaches dialogue, believing that the true source of freedom is found in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So see how he did that thing there? He, uh, he speaks about what's common to all religions as a sort of um, method of dialogue, but then he doesn't shy away from proclamation of declaring the Christian conviction that true freedom the truth will set you free, as 
Christ says in the Gospel of John. And elsewhere he says, I am the truth. Right? So it's Christ who sets us free. Uh, so Benedict offers us a witness of why Catholics might extend a hand to Muslims. Um, we have differences in terms of revelation, but we have other things that would bring us, um, bring us together. But we're also called to proclamation. Um, maybe another way of sharing um, commonalities and differences that Christians and Muslims have is a story about um, a medieval Muslim um, who, two medieval Muslims who went to study with a Christian who was in the city of Baghdad, who was known to be a medical doctor, a mathematician, and a philosopher, but he was also a priest. And these two Muslims traveled to meet this man. His name was Hunayn ibn Ishaq. And uh, they found him doing his priestly thing. He was doing all these things priests do, like with incense and bowing before um, icons and the thing with the bread and the wine and all that. And they were like, this is really weird. I thought this guy was an intellectual. And he's doing all these strange rituals. And this guy, Hunayn, he saw them and he was like, he knew what was going on. He was like, I want you to go to Mecca, all the way to Mecca, and do your pilgrimage thing. And they went and they were like, okay. And they went and they did it. And they came back. And, and then this was like months passed by, right? And they were like, he was like, Hunayn was like, oh, did you do your pilgrimage thing? And they were like, yes. And then he was like, did you do all the things like where you shave your head and you kill an animal and you throw pebbles at stones? These are all things that happen as part of the Muslim pilgrimage. And you walk around a black building. Did you do all that? And they were like, yeah, we did all those things. And he said, then you know that the things of religion are given to us by God and we do them out of obedience. But the things of the intellect we reflect on with the reason." So every religion has its particular traditions. They're different, but they're analogous. Okay, end of story. Um, so that's wonderful uh, with Benedict and all of that. I'd like to just give one final example, and then that'll basically be done, about how Christians um, can think about dialogue and proclamation together. So the first example was Benedict. Um, so that's fine. And then the second example reaches back further to someone named Thomas Aquinas. You've heard of this guy? So he lived earlier in the 13th century. And he also actually had his own interaction with Muslims. So this is um, the final example. Final example, I think I said that already, but I really want to assure you that I will stop. There will be an end. So, uh, yeah, so this guy, Thomas, he had this interesting thing that happened to him. You know, he was, you know how these priests have different orders, like congregations and stuff? So he had an order he was in, which is known as the Dominicans. And the thing about the Dominicans at the time is he was in Paris, although he was an Italian, but he was in Paris like teaching and stuff. And then there were other Dominicans that were really far away um, in the Holy Land because it was like the Crusades and stuff. And they set up like Frankish states there. And the, the Dominicans eventually followed them. Dominicans came a bit later, but they followed them and established um, churches in the Holy Land. And there was one Dominican who was in the Holy Land who had a conversation with a Muslim. And the Muslim asked him some questions. The Muslim said, um, how can God have a son when God has no wife? Which when you think about it, seems like a pretty good question. Um, I mean, I know you don't actually need to be married. Anyway, okay. <laughs> okay, so, and then secondly, he said... Um, it's not really a question, but you believe that there are three persons in God. Doesn't that make you insane? Uh, 
So that's not really a question, but that's a whatever. And then the third thing was, he says, how can you say if Christ is the Son of God that he was crucified? And then the fourth thing is, how can you claim to eat your God at the altar? And then he says, I like this line, he says, even if your God was as big as a mountain, he would have long since been consumed, been eaten up, right? Because you get it. Um, right. Okay, so what happened was this Dominican... He was in Syria, in the Holy Land, and he heard these questions, and uh, his response was, and we may have this experience in our lives, maybe not with a Muslim, maybe with a secular friend or whatever. Someone asks you questions about the faith, and you're like, uh, can I get back to you on that? Because you, know, you just don't know what to say, right? And so what the Dominican did is he, and this it really took him a while to get back to his friend, because he wrote a letter to Thomas, which it would take a long time to get back to Paris, and then Thomas like reflected and wrote this thing, and then he sent it uh, apparently all the way back to Syria. So like a year later, he was like knocking on his Muslim friend's door. He's like, "I've got the answer." <laughs> so anyway, what I wanted just to say is the way Thomas responds is really fascinating. Okay, Thomas does two things. First, he lays down certain guidelines to speaking to Muslims, um, and he says, um, "Listen." Look at the example of Peter, and he refers here to, you know, we have Peter not only in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, but we have two letters of Peter that are actually in the New Testament. Um, I know we're Catholics here, but um, <laughs> we can still read the New Testament. Uh, so he has these two letters there, right? And Peter says, and Thomas quotes him, um, always have your answer ready. For people ask you the reason for the hope that you have in your hearts. That's a really beautiful line, I think. Yeah? And, um, and Thomas says, isn't it interesting that Peter says, always have your answer ready. He doesn't say, always have your proof ready. And Thomas says, why does, why does Peter say that? Why does he have your answer ready? And he says, the, the reason is because what we call the mysteries of the faith cannot be proven. We cannot prove that God logically must be one divine substance with three hypostases or three persons. We cannot prove that God must, must necessarily have become a person, incarnate. We cannot prove that the Eucharist is not only bread and wine, but also the body and blood of Christ. These are all mysteries that are revealed to us. And Thomas says, listen, these mysteries surpass the mind of angels how much more they seem unfathomable to us. So, but Thomas adds, but because they are true, they cannot be proven false. And so our job is to show the logic or reason in these doctrines without trying to prove them necessarily true. Right? So we should be ready with good answers, but we should also understand that our faith is built on these mysteries which God has revealed to us. And they're attractive to us, not necessarily because we see how they must be so, but because of their beauty, the beauty of the Trinity, the beauty of the Incarnation, and the beauty of the teaching of the Eucharist. It makes me think of this saying of Paul uh, in the first letter to the Corinthians, who says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, friends, um, just a note in conclusion. Um, dialogue with Islam is a particular challenge 
because Islam has its distinct teaching on Christ. Um, Muslims know that Jesus was the second to last prophet, that he predicted the coming of Muhammad, that the Bible is not necessarily the reliable book, the Quran is the reliable book, that God is simply one and that he's transcendent or other, that he would not become incarnate. Um, and they, they have a challenge for Christians, that Christians, won't you just simply say this declaration of faith, that there's no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. Um, isn't it simpler and easier? Um, why not just acknowledge one more prophet and become a Muslim? And in our response, we should be ready to have answers for the hope that lies in our hearts. We should be ready to speak about the beauty of our doctrine, but we should also be ready to appreciate the beauty that's also in the Islamic faith. So we have this twin obligation of dialogue and proclamation. And as we saw on Friday, the beauty of Muslims prostrating in submission before God, we can also notice the beauty that Muslims um, demonstrate in other elements of their life when they show obedience to God by wearing a headscarf or by fasting in Ramadan or by diligently praying five times a day. Someone said today in our class, I don't know many Christians who take um, five times a day um, to pray to God. And so um, in order to dialogue with Muslims who are now about two billion in number and growing throughout the world, in, including in South Bend, there was no room, the, the mosque was overflowing on Friday, it is not simply enough to speak about Jesus or the sacraments or simply Christian teaching. We also need to have some awareness of Islamic teaching so that we can respond intelligently to Muslim claims about Jesus. And that, I think, is a great challenge in Catholic-Muslim dialogue. Thank you. We're going to open up the floor for questions for our speaker. Um, so whenever you're ready, raise your hand, and I'll come to you so you can ask our speaker any questions. Hi. Um, I was wondering that you mentioned that how uh, Islam, uh, Muslims didn't believe that Jesus was crucified. I was just wondering what were the views on the crimes that made the punishment of cruci crucifixion justified? So do you, do you mean... Uh, like the conspiracy against Jesus in particular, or do you mean like crucifixion generally? Um, I guess generally. Like why was the punishment of crucifixion given to Jesus? Like, Okay, cool. Yeah, G good question. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Islamic teaching on the prophets generally, the standard theme, remember I spoke about these, these punishment stories which suggested that Prophets are sent to people, peoples, and then these peoples tend to reject the prophet and then God punishes them. Uh, something similar happens with the life of Jesus according to Islamic teaching, which is that most of the people, the Israelites to whom he was sent, they rejected him. And there's one verse in the Quran which says, um, Jesus came with, to them, not only did he come to them preaching, but he came to them with miracles. He was doing like these great miracles. The Quran speaks about his miracles. It says that, uh, you know, he healed the blind and lepers. It says that he raised people from the dead. He did all sorts of other miracles. One story in the Quran says he formed birds from clay and then he breathed into them and they came to life, which is cool. 
and uh, so, uh, but is, so, but the teaching is that even with these miracles, the Jews um, rejected him, and uh, the Quran has, has references to people killing the prophets, that, that in the Israelites in particular, that this is something they would do. Not only would they reject prophets, that they would kill the prophets. And that's a little bit in common with something we found in, find in the New Testament. If anyone can call to mind the scene of Jesus weeping before Jerusalem. Remember when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I have longed to gather you in as a mother hen does her brood? Is that the word? Anyway, <laughs> kind of like saying that, brood. Uh, so, right? And so Jesus is weeping them. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you. So you have this, this teaching um, that seems to come from the New Testament that the Israelites would kill prophets. Anyway, it's too long. Answer's too long. In brief, uh, there's this notion that the Israelites not only rejected Jesus, but had a conspiracy against him to kill him. They tried to do it, but God intervened and they killed the wrong guy. Uh, so, okay, first of all, that was an amazing talk, so thank you. Um, the question I had was, uh, you mentioned that at the end of time or the end of the world or what have you, that um, Jesus, the prophet, was supposed to come back and kind of rally everyone around the true religion of Islam. Um, and I was wondering why... Um, according to Islamic teaching, that is the jobs given to Jesus as opposed to uh, Muhammad? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. Um, it would seem more natural to be Muhammad, right? Because he's the central figure, he's the final prophet, he's the definitive prophet. Um, but the difference is that in Islamic teaching, of course, uh, Muhammad finished his life in 632, and he's dead and buried in the city of Medina in Saudi Arabia. And so his life is finished. And there was just the ambiguity surrounding the end of Jesus' life in the Quran. Now, according to which the Quran says explicitly he was raised to heaven, to God. And that explicit statement combined with the notion that he escaped death on the cross suggests that he was raised to heaven without death. And if God, there's just speculation, if God had done that, there must be a reason. Why would, he, why would God preserve him from death? And Muslim scholars concluded that it, it has to be because he still has something left to do. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you can remember, we have traditions in the New Testament which sort of suggest that John the Baptist is connected with the figure of Elijah. Right? Is this Elijah who's come back? Well, why were the Jews thinking that Elijah might come back? It's because of the story in the book of Kings that the end of Elijah's life uh, he doesn't die, but he goes up to heaven, you may, you may know, in a chariot of fire. In like a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. And so Jews began to speculate, well, he didn't die, so he must be coming back. And in fact, at a Passover Seder supper, as you may know, a glass of wine is left for Elijah, because he, he might show up. Um, he, he's, he'd be the one. So it's basically the speculation around the end of Jesus' life. Thank you. Um, you did a really great job of explaining the Quran and like kind of the issues that may arise between Christians and Muslims there, and then also the uh, closeness and uh, areas where we can have mutual agreement. And that was really great. So thank you for that. I've never really been able like heard that. But I had a question about um, something that I think 
at least from what I understand, also raises more issues, which is the hadith. And I've heard that it's commentary on the Quran, and oftentimes that there may actually be like contradictions between the Quran and the hadith, and even within the hadith, different commentaries. So could you maybe comment on some of the issues that may arise there? Great. Uh, thank you. Please, may all further questions be easy questions. Oh, sorry. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Abbreviated version, maybe? No. <laughs> That's a, no, it's a, very, it's a very important point. Because, in fact, for, for Muslims, for Muslims, only the Quran is the word of God that's come from heaven to earth. Only the Quran is used in ritual, in prayer. So different pieces of the Quran are, are recited during Islamic prayer. However, in terms of Sharia or Islamic law, both the Quran and the Hadith, the second source, are equally authoritative. So if something comes from the Hadith and you believe it's authentic, it has just as much uh, authority as a verse from the Quran. So the Hadith, just to remind you, remember we, we spoke about Muhammad having these dual roles. One role he had was to proclaim the words that he heard from an angel, but the other role he had um, was to be an exemplar, to, to model proper conduct, both in the things he said and in the things he did. So, for example, putting on the right shoe first, etc., etc. But also the things he said. So there are many sayings um, of Muhammad. For example, uh, no man has, uh, has proper religion until he wants for his neighbor what he wants for himself. That's not in the Quran. That's a hadith, which is close to... Um, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, so that, that's a hadith. Um, and there are many other hadith. The thing about hadith is, the problem is, sometimes there are conflicts with the Quran. Um, there are things in the hadith that are not in the Quran. Um, and then there are things in the hadith which seem to be contrary to the Quran. For example, the Quran never speaks, we spoke about women in headscarf, the Quran never says that a woman should cover her head or her hair. It just says that a woman should dress modestly, basically. Um, but the Hadith says a woman, you have Hadith which say that women should cover their hair. Some of them suggest that a woman should cover her face as well, um, which is where you have this tradition of the niqab or the, the shador, which covers the face. Uh, so um, the, the, the problem with the Hadith which is not really commentary in the Quran, they're just a separate source of traditions, is it's a, it's a vast body of individual discrete traditions. So there are literally um, tens of thousands of hadith that are out there, and they're in different collections. And Muslims themselves recognize that Muhammad couldn't have said all these things. And in fact, because sometimes hadith contradict themselves, uh, what to do in legal cases, for example... Um, rules about food you can eat. Uh, you have different hadith which say different things about the same food, right? So you have these contradictions. Um, and so Muslims would say, well, people were inventing hadith, and what we have to do is to do triage, basically, to determine which hadith are authentic and which hadith are inauthentic. And that was a long part of Islamic tradition with scholars who went through the hadith, and they were like, this is right, this is authentic, this is bad, this was invented and falsified. And certain traditions, certain collections of hadith were known as the authentic collections and had a sort of elevated status, and they were considered to be more um, reliable. Actually, you know, just between all of us here, um, critical scholars, some critical scholars would say that 
all of the hadith are unreliable. This is not Muslim belief, right? This is well, critical scholars um, studying Islam would say the Quran is an ancient document. It may come from Muhammad's own lifetime, but the hadith probably not. It's probably a later source, but that doesn't mean it changes for, for Muslims. For Muslims, hadith are vitally important and accompany the Quran. Thank you. That actually segues into the second question I had, which was at our table. Sorry. We were, we were kind of curious because it seems like, at least the way it's been explained, it's very simple Islam. It's very, like, pretty straightforward. Um, and I know that, like, Ibn Rushd preserved Aristotelian philosophy for many years before the West had, had it. And so we were curious, like, when, when did or did Islamic philosophy or deep the- theological thought end? Um, or if not, like, how is it so simple with not as much maybe deep theological stuff as in Catholicism? Yeah, super. Great, great question, right? So Islam develops, Islam flourishes throughout the medieval period and develops a number of different sciences. Some of them have to do with the sources of Islam. So we have sciences surrounding the Quran and Quranic interpretation. Um, Others have to do with law. So the whole science about how you can understand what the Sharia is. But others are, are not directly related to scripture, to the Quran, or to the hadith. And the two principal ones are theology and philosophy. Um, and uh, uh, theology um, for, in the Islamic tradition is very closely linked to apologetics, which is one area for Catholic tradition of theology, but is just one area among many. For Islam, apologetics, that is the rational defense of the faith, is the central um, activity of theology. But then you have philosophy, which has no connection at all to the source of revelation. It's just uh, intellectual reflection on what is true or what is good, um, is philosophy. And you mentioned you know, one of the great Muslim theologians, Ibn Rushd, or Averroes, who uh, was a Spanish uh, Muslim, and eventually his thought has an important impact also in the articulation of European philosophy and theology and has even um, inspired Thomas Aquinas in certain ways. Um, But you also have a parallel movement which is connected to something in Islam known as Salafi Islam or Salafism. And this movement of Salafism says we should always go back to the origins of Islam and we should be suspicious of anything which develops in the medieval period. And so this Salafi Islam basically says it should only be the Quran and the Hadith. We have no business coming up with other ways of doing religion. And it's, that Salafi version of Islam is on the rise today uh, in the Sunni Islamic world especially. There's more and more uh, Muslims who associate themselves with Salafism. And so in those circles, philosophy and theology are looked on with skepticism but they continue be, to be practiced actively by, by other, um, in other circles of Muslims. Hi. Um, very great talk. Um, so I guess right now I'm trying to relate it back to this past year where we see the rise of Islam populism, especially in Indonesia, where you see um, the, the, Muslim, uh, the non-Muslim, the Christian government, ended up being imprisoned. And like this is a very um, selfish because I'm originally from Indonesia, and like I'm I'm having a hard time in terms of dialoguing with my Muslim friend who are pro um, this imprisonment of the non-Muslim in in this particular part of the country, and just trying to like 
see how how do you dialogue with charity when it comes to like dealing with this very contentious issue when it comes to like um, working with Muslim and non-Muslim uh, relationships. So with your contending modernity, how, what's your perspective in terms of your approach in this particular um, area? Thank you, thank you so much for that, that question. Um, and you know, I don't know the case in detail, but this Ahok, right, is his, sort of his nickname, but not his full name, was the Christian governor of, um, of Jakarta, I think, yes, um, of that, that province. Um, and uh, there was a controversy surrounding one verse in the Quran, which is chapter 5, verse 51, which is a little bit difficult to understand. It, it seems to say to the Muslim audience, do not take Christians or Jews, and then it has a word which is in Arabic, awliya, which can mean friends, but as I understand it, in the standard Bahasa Indonesian translation, it's it's translated as um, authorities above you, basically. I don't know the exact word. You probably know. Um, and so some of the opponents of this Christian governor in the electoral com election campaign, they said, well, you, you just can't vote for a Christian to be your ruler. And he sort of intervened in the debate and said, well, don't listen to these people. And it was seen as an attack against the Quran. Um, and anyway, so that's just a little bit of background. Hopefully I got it more or less right. Um, but um, in, in those situations, I, my own conviction is that there's areas of, of genuine disagreement. And in Muslim-Christian dialogue, a, a standard theme of Christians working in the Islamic world, as in your case, that I see come up time and time again, is the insistence of citizenship, the notion of citizenship, which I think historically is, is quite strong in Indonesia, but maybe changing now. Um, that people before the state are not um, recognized by their confession, but only as citizens. Um, and that's something that Christian minorities in the Islamic world have long insisted on and with various success. But I would say, for me, this is a, this is a moment for speaking truth and not necessarily for compromise. Dialogue doesn't have to be compromised. And I think the truth is that all... all um, uh, all residents in any state have the right to be treated as equals, whatever their confession is, and it's not something that should be compromised. So uh, it's not a moment for backing down or for compromise. With charity, one can stand on principle.